chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Welcome to the State of Cannabis, bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. Advocates and analysts will join us to discuss the ongoing path to reform and legislation. Now, the State of Cannabis, with your host, Dave Inman. Welcome to the State of Cannabis, keeping you, our listener, on the pulse of what's happening today in the State of Cannabis. I'm your host, Dave Inman. With us tonight, we have Allison Holcomb. For those of you who may not know who she was, turn on your Netflix and watch Evergreen, a wonderful documentary on how Washington was able to legalize cannabis. Allison, thank you so much for showing up today. Dave, thank you so much for having me on. So tell me, it looked like there was a bit of challenge for you folks up in Washington, not necessarily so much from the cannabis itself, but apparently even the community seemed to have a bit of issue. Yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised by the way that the campaign played out because as it turned out, the opposition that you would normally expect, law enforcement, people in the prevention and treatment communities, didn't really come out to oppose I-502 in any meaningful way. Instead, what we saw were maybe a small number, but a very loud and strongly voiced community coming forward from the medical marijuana community saying, we don't want this. We don't want this form of regulation. So it was interesting. It felt a bit like friends battling friends. You know, in a lot of ways mirrors what's happening here in Arizona. Currently, we have seven initiatives that have been filed with the Secretary of State's office. We have backing with MPP, which obviously they have a good track record of actually changing laws. But we have a slew of other people, everything from hemp to copy and paste of the MPP initiative. And honest, they've changed words to protect the innocent. But ultimately, it's the same type of thing. Did you have more than one initiative in play when you were uh, championing the efforts up in Washington? We did during the periods when signature drives were underway. And so there had been an effort led by Sensible Washington, a different campaign, to put initiatives on the ballot, and they had engaged in signature gathering drives, primarily all volunteer drives, and had not been able to gather enough signatures to qualify a proposal for the ballot. And they were disappointed, not only in the fact that they weren't able to get their initiative on the ballot, but also because they would have preferred a different version of legalization and weren't happy with the version that they saw in Initiative 502. And so they were part of the opposition to Initiative 502. And that's always a challenge. You don't like to have infighting among your allies, especially when you are tackling an issue as profound and challenging as full legalization of cannabis. Now, were members of Sensible Washington ever involved in the drafting process or invited to the I-502 campaign? And, and if so, where did that fall apart? To be honest, they weren't involved in the drafting. It gets a little bit into personal history among some of the players in the various camps. Sensible Washington happened to be led by a couple of attorneys with whom I'd worked for many years. And, you know, one in particular was very opposed to the idea of, of somebody else coming forward with an initiative. And it was a difficult call to make, but there was a moment in time in which 
we had to decide whether or not we were going to bring these people into the inner circle where they would have access to the strategy that was underway. In fact, what had happened is when Sensible Washington was drafting their initiative for the ballot in 2012, the primary proponent of that measure had contacted me and asked me for advice. I offered some advice. That advice was rejected, which was fine. He had a specific idea about what he wanted to do. But because there was this kind of unhealthy tension in, I guess, what I would call ownership of who is going to get to put something forward, we ultimately decided that there might be too many loose cannons on the deck of Sensible Washington and that we would proceed with drafting and strategy conversations without them. It's certainly not a place that anybody wants to be, and maybe we didn't make the right call on that, but at the time we were concerned about what the possible fallout would be of giving people insider access that had established, at least from our view, had established up to that point that they had self-destructive tendencies. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but up until that point, nothing like this had ever been done. That's right. You know, at that point, we're talking about 2010, 2011, 2012. At that point, we had seen the Department of Justice come forward with a memorandum to its U.S. attorney saying, don't waste resources going after medical marijuana or people involved in medical marijuana activity who are complying with state law. And yet we also, at the same time, were seeing people get arrested and indicted federally. And everything was in flux, and nobody knew whether or not it was possible to pass full legalization. We had seen Proposition 19 in California in 2010 fail, but there was a ray of hope in that, you know, in the sense that they got 46.5% of the vote with not a lot of financial backing in a very expensive media market. But the DEA and the Department of Justice were rattling their sabers saying, yeah, if you pass this, we're going to come after you and we're going to shut everybody down, arrest and prosecute them. So we were taking a very conservative approach to drafting and to campaign strategy because we wanted two things to happen. We wanted the Washington state voters to pass the measure, and then we wanted the federal government to allow us to implement it, and we had no inkling that either was actually possible when we were drafting and preparing for the campaign back in 2011. So with all the opposition, was there a moment you felt you were at the breaking point from your opposition? And if so, what happened then? You know, I think what was sad for me, and that's a really good question. No one's actually ever asked me that question. It was difficult because these were good friends that were on the other side. Not all of them were, but a couple of the lawyers in particular who were aligned with Sensible Washington were actually, one of them was the attorney, Jeff Steinborn, was the attorney who had sort of raised me as a lawyer. He graduated from Yale Law School the year I was born. Um, I came, I went to work for him back in 1995 and, and worked with him all the way to the year 2000, no, 2002, I think. And he had sort of brought me up in caring about this issue and thinking about the broader policy implications of marijuana prohibition. And for him to be on the other side was very difficult on a personal level. And I think the breaking point for me was a phone call that wound up in hanging up on each other and me actually needing to take a break and walk out of my office. I think what brought it back around is just the realization that I think many of us in this movement understand, but sometimes maybe we forget, we take our eyes off the ball and we forget that this is not about us. This is not about who gets to write it, who gets to run the campaign, who gets credit. That's all completely irrelevant. This is about the people that are getting arrested by police officers, dragged in front of courts, 
separated from their families, having their property taken from them, losing their jobs because they're in jail for a day or two days or three days over the weekend while the judge waits to give them a hearing on bail, and ultimately face the possibility of being convicted of a crime, maybe a felony crime, that is going to have a life-changing impact for them. And that's who it's about. And I think keeping focus on the fact that we're trying to stop that, that we're trying to stop people getting pushed into the machinery of the criminal justice system, is what makes it possible for us to take those personally painful moments, set them aside, and say, you know what? I'm not behind bars right now, so I'm just going to suck it up and keep moving forward because that's what I'm working for. Exactly. It's the people that have not yet gotten into the criminal justice system and preventing them from finding themselves in a place where they will no longer be able to produce a substantive wealth for themselves. And when I mean that, I mean actually being able to provide for their families in a meaningful way. One of the most substantive aspects is one's ability to produce money. Our Arizona Department of Health Services uh, director, former, had made mention that a home's ability to produce is one of the most important aspects of life standard. And if you are no longer to actually have a job and hold it down uh, or produce a career at some point, that is one of the most unhealthy things that a family can actually experience. Aside from just being in a criminal justice system, it's a lifelong thing that they have to endure. Allison, I got to take a quick break. Folks, we will be back with you here in a second. Allison Holcomb, I-502, Evergreen. We'll be right back with you. Stay tuned for more State of Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com when we return. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, more flavor. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around. Listen in as medical marijuana pioneer Dr. Dina shares never-before-heard stories, chats with cannabis insiders and celebrity friends, and provides invaluable perspective and insight into one of the fastest-growing industries in the world. I want to share with you what was once confidential information. Let's expose the truth, discuss the issues, and learn the facts. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Welcome back to the State of Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Once again, here's Dave Inman. Welcome back to the State of Cannabis. I'm your host, Dave Inman. 
with us tonight, we have none other than Allison Holcomb. With the ACLU, she was the campaign director for Yes on I-502, featured in the documentary Evergreen, The Road to Legalization. Allison, thank you for coming on the show. Earlier, we were talking about some of the trials and tribulations that you had experienced with what normally would have been probably a joyous occurrence, something that you would have anticipated everybody putting you on uh, their shoulders and carrying you. But that's, in fact, not what happened. Even though through all of that really compounding and confounding situations that had happened, when did you know that you had won the election? Was it well before election night? No, it, no, it wasn't. We were actually very, very nervous about whether or not we were going to win. I just had a stubbornness about me that refused to write the speech that you would give, you know, if your measure failed to pass. But our internal polling numbers, you know, our internal polling firm was showing us right at 50% or a little bit below 50% throughout the summer, in the spring and the summer. And then it wasn't until mid-October when the University of Washington came out with a poll that showed us winning by a comfortable margin. And I think we were reassured by that, but we were also, we continued to be nervous because the numbers that we had been looking at internally didn't show us that far ahead. So, and then on election night, what happened when the first ballot drop was announced just after 8 p.m., my deputy director was looking at numbers on her phone and handed me her phone and it showed us trailing at, I think we were maybe at 46%. And so I uh, tried to be very calm and collected myself. And she's handing this to me as I'm standing at the podium looking at these cameras and, and microphones. And I'm trying to keep a poker face and say, okay, well, the initial reports have us at 46% or whatever the number was, is in the 40s. But, you know, we're going to watch the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And thank goodness, Another friend was in the audience, and he had different numbers on his phone, and he rushed up to the podium, and he said, no, 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 no. She doesn't have the King County numbers, King County being the county in Washington State that has the most population. It's where Seattle is, and there's sort of an adage here in Washington State that if you win King County, if you stand on the Space Needle, everything that you can see around you, those are the votes you have to win to carry the state because of the population density. He had the numbers that had King County on it and handed those to me, and we were uh, well over 50%, I think at 54 or 56% with the King County numbers. And so that was the first moment when I realized it was real, and we were really going to pass it. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. And that's, I mean, to your point about being able to celebrate with others, I have to say there were plenty of people that put me on their shoulders and congratulated me and were wonderful. But I think the heartbreak that you're alluding to is that there's some people that you just want to be able to hug and say, you know, we wouldn't have come this far without your work over all these years. And that's so true. As you know, in Arizona, as we know here, there's so many people that have been working in the field, being activists for year after year after year. And it's sad at a moment like that when they aren't with you and you aren't able to celebrate with them because it's a mutual victory. Nobody's able to do this on their own. You know, it's so many people that have put in tireless hours, stood on street corners, having uh, rallies, educating people on a case-by-case or in a group event. And it, it harms the soul almost when you have this parting of ways that seems to occur. And it's something that we're absolutely experiencing here in Arizona, and it's unfortunate. It's absolutely unfortunate because we all chorus the same message. We all want the same thing. 
we don't want to go to jail for a plan. And it's one of those things that everybody's so passionate about, yet they only learn about the political process because of. And so in a lot of ways, they're, they don't understand what it takes. They think that simply by passion that the cream will rise to the top. And that simply isn't the case. There is so many cogs that have to be moved, and it just doesn't happen otherwise. So to that point, your campaign got a, a lot of support from some very large donors. How did that wind up shaping the campaign? You know, I think I, the reason why donors came in, and a lot of people don't know that we didn't have donors secured. When we were gathering signatures, we had enough money to get the signatures. We had enough money to open an office space. And there were basically four people who were paid employees during the campaign. And one of them, me, was basically an in-kind contribution. I was paid because I was still on my ACLU of Washington salary. But in terms of being able to hire any other campaign staff. It was a very, very small staff. We had to prove that we had a politically viable initiative before the donors who had the capacity to fund a paid media television campaign came forward. We didn't have that commitment until August of 2012. It was, you know, very, very tense for us. And we were just determined that we were going to go forward with the initiative regardless. But the sad, maybe a sad truth, whether it's sad or not, the reality is, is that being able to have a large megaphone, which means being able to buy time on television stations and run ads, especially in the statewide ballot initiative, is critical. You know, you need to be able to get your message out and to explain what it is that your proposal is doing and not let the opposition frame your proposal for you. So that only happened after we proved that we were politically viable. And what that meant was, did we have reach outside of the base? Did we Were we talking to people outside of those of us that had been working with marijuana law reform for years? And that's tough. It, it does mean that you check your dedication to the perfect at the door and you engage in the messiness of political compromise so that you can bring more people to the table. You know, we brought law enforcement to the table. We brought prevention and treatment to the table. We brought people to the table who were reassuring to that segment of the voting population, which is a healthy third of the voting population that were really nervous that were saying, yeah, we don't really think people should go to jail, but I don't know about what the, you know, alternative should look like. I'm a little bit nervous about this whole idea that we're going to open up marijuana stores all over the state of Washington. And I just, I know I'm going on a bit. I just want to circle back <laughs> and say your comment before the commercial break about the economic impact of a criminal conviction is so well taken and so important. And it's really something that activists need to stay focused on is how do we get to the point where people will agree with us, people that don't like marijuana, right? That, that was our target audience because, yes, there are a lot of people who use marijuana, but if you look at people's attitudes about marijuana, they're not saying marijuana is a great thing, but they agree with you that people shouldn't get criminal convictions. And that's a very important point that you made that this is crippling economically to the person who gets a criminal conviction and no longer will get jobs and also to their family that they're trying to support and create a stable home for and provide health insurance for and provide educational opportunities for and a mode of transportation. You crush them economically and 
it's over. And that is something that you know, Jeff Steinborn, the lawyer who brought me up sort of in the marijuana world, said at one point, a marijuana conviction is an economic death sentence. You hit that nail on the head. It doesn't matter if you spend a day behind bars, which is awful in and of itself, but you're absolutely right about that conviction. So, sorry, to bring it back around, it <laughs> you know, is I'm really gonna, I'm gonna difficult. I'm going to catch you off real quick. Uh, and, yeah, please and hold do. that thought, I've got, we got to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, a wonderful discussion with Allison Holcomb. We'll be right back with you. Stay tuned for more State of Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com when we return. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made business plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Welcome back to the State of Cannabis, only on CannabisRadio.com. Once again, here's Dave Inman. Welcome back to the State of Cannabis. I'm your host, Dave Inman. With us, we have someone who actually freed the weed in Washington State. Allison Holcomb, thank you so much for joining us. Earlier we were talking about, you know, the the dismal effects that occur from simple conviction from cannabis. And saying simple really doesn't ring true enough. I told you to hold that thought, and I hope you have. I'm letting you roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, Well, Dave, you really hit the nail on the head. And so I just think it's important to emphasize for everyone that cares about this issue that what we're talking about is not simply stopping the arrest, prosecution, and jailing of individuals, but we're talking about stopping 
the criminal conviction that gets attached to their name that follows them from job application to job application, from apartment rental application to the next. They want to get a small business loan. Everything that creates stability in a person's life and provides the opportunities to participate in civil society gets taken away by having the black mark of a criminal conviction on the record. And so it's those things, you know, you've really touched on a lot of the challenges for activists and coming together to back a proposal to get marijuana legalization done. The one thing we haven't talked about much that I just kind of want to add to that is I think because we are so passionate about this issue, we sometimes think that the law that we're fashioning is the law that will be. And that is not how law works. It is a sausage-making practice, and it's constantly evolving. There has never been a perfect law. There will never be a perfect law. They change from period to period, and we've seen that with I-502. After it passed, the first couple of years after it passed, there weren't very many bills that were introduced to start tinkering with it. This session in 2015, there were over 50 bills that were introduced by legislators to try to fix and amend. There were some that were trying to be defeatist, but there were a lot that were trying to tinker with it and make it work better. And so I think that's something for people to keep in mind is that the goal here is to pass a law that just in its essence is creating a form of legalization. That's just the next part of the conversation. The work will continue and people will continue to have opportunities to contribute to what that winds up looking like in the long run. When we get hung up and trying to make it perfect from the outset, we shoot ourselves in the feet. Exactly. It's a Doppler. You know, you, you toss a pebble out in the pond and you, you watch it resonate away from, from the effect. It's a land race. You know, every bit that we're able to grab and attain is ours. And as long as we maintain that mindset, we gain more footing and we gain more freedoms for people moving forward. So I'd like to touch on something, um, and it's a touchy one, grow rights. <laughs> mm, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's been an argument in every single state that I've witnessed. They weren't in the initiative, and now they're being added back in. And how's that going? You know, I think it's ultimately going to be okay. I will own and just you know, let everybody know that the reason that we did not include the right to grow at home in the initiative was that what our polling was telling us is that people were not supportive of that. And we were looking at numbers that were so tight that we were really worried about losing even one or two percentage points of support for the initiative. We were never sure it was going to pass when we were drafting this. In retrospect, of course, you see that every law that's passed since then does include the right to home grow. And that's really been helpful in talking to legislators about changing that now. And in fact, there was legislation introduced this session to do exactly that. So I think we'll get there. It is a glaring omission. It is something that needs to be addressed. And in fact, when we were having arguments about what to do with medical marijuana this session, I wrote an op-ed that ran in the Seattle Times saying, look, we ought to have home grow because that would help a lot in terms of making sure that patients retain their right to grow the medicine that suits them personally and their needs. Exactly. And I really have one more question for you. Post-conviction had to be separated out from the initiative. And why do you feel that you couldn't have post-conviction in the initiative? And by post-conviction, do you mean the fact that people who had already been convicted could have that wiped off their record? Exactly. Like a post-conviction yeah. relief. We, we've had similar shouting matches here in Arizona over it. And my stance on it is that it's such a big animal 
you know, post-conviction, that it needs to stand on its own. It's something that needs probably more attention than simply just a legalization or a regulation effort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so people understand the the default position is anytime a criminal law is changed, it's not retroactive. So people that were convicted of something before the change in the law remain convicted of that. We didn't include the retroactivity position in, in part because we were concerned about what the social reaction to that would be. But the other thing that's probably more salient to consider is that there usually is a big fiscal note attached to that because what you're talking about is an increase in court resources being dedicated to going back through records, having motions to vacate previous convictions. It does need to be addressed. The Washington State Legislature actually has seen a bill introduced by one of our legislators to do exactly that, to eliminate people's past convictions. But because there is that huge fiscal note that gets attached to it, it's a challenging question. And so for us, this was another decision of, do we want to have something in the initiative that runs the risk of tanking the entire proposal, or should we tackle that later? And we opted to tackle it later. And what are you doing now for that? We are supporting legislation that has been introduced by Washington State representatives that would go back and for people that had been convicted of possession that wouldn't have been under the current law, that they would have an automatic vacation and dismissal of that previous conviction. And we're going to continue to support that effort in the legislature until it happens, until it's done. So in other words, once the initiative passed, you weren't done, and nobody was done. It's a continuing can that keeps getting kicked down the road. We get more and more freedoms as we do it. You know, just like uh, in Denver, they're voting to consume uh, in bars. And, you know, these are the things that they need to happen. And it, and it's something that in some states can be piecemeal. You know, there's going to be a lot of states moving forward that are stuck with CBD for a long time. But the fact remains that we are making ground, constantly making ground. We're about out of time, Allison. I, I could go on forever with you, honestly. The, the subject matter is just, it, it rings home so much. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, imparting what you've dealt with thus far. Thank you for what you do, what you have done, and please keep doing it. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. And the same to you. Don't lose the passion and weather the storm. It's all going to come out okay in the end. Absolutely. And again, folks, if you haven't seen it yet, I highly encourage you to watch it. Just hop over to Netflix. I'm sure you have it already. Evergreen, The Road to Legalization. Allison Holcomb with the ACLU, thank you again for showing up. I'm your host, Dave Inman. Thank you for joining us on the show. You can download past episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also, you can follow the show on Facebook and Google+. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk with you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.